Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Diller Teen Tikkun Olam Awards. Help shine a light on the next generation of inspiring young Jewish leaders. Each year, the Diller Teen Tikkun Olam Awards recognize 15 extraordinary Jewish teenagers from across the United States with an award of $36,000 to honor their initiatives to help change the world. You can nominate a teen today or they can apply directly by January 7th. Visit www.dillerteenawards.org unbound to learn more. That's www.dillerteenawards.org unbound. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 304, Circumcision and its Jewish Alternatives. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And today we continue our discussion about circumcision, which is a critically important topic in its own right, and also representative of a variety of conversations that ought to be happening within the Jewish world about whether and to what extent and in what ways Jewish practices that have been around a long time should continue to be around, should be around in a modified way, should not be around at all, can be varied and enhanced, and there's room for diversity. All of those questions we have about a variety of Jewish practices. Just from our conversation last week, we know that there are a lot of people who are really excited to hear about the organization that we talked with, Bruchim, because this issue touches them and their own family. And people have found and expressed relief at knowing that they're not the only one out there with these questions. So we're continuing to look at this topic of circumcision, this week talking to a married couple who have come to this issue more recently, who've spoken about it with friends in their own lives, and who have gotten involved with the organization that we talked to last week, Bruchim. They represent the kind of family that Bruchim is out there to reach and to help. And like I said, they themselves are now involved with Bruchim. Our guests today are Max Buckler and Charlene Throp. Max Buckler is Bruchim's Director of Strategic Initiatives, which includes digital communications, research, and coalition building. And we should also note that he is a student in Lex's class in our inaugural cohort of the Yeshiva, which we're really excited about. So in that sense, he may also be bringing a bit of a Judaism Unbound lens to this conversation, as well as the Bruchim lens and his own personal lens. Our second guest is Charlene Thrope. She is part of the extended Bruchim team, although that's not her day job. She is a graduate of the double degree program with Barnard College and the Jewish Theological Seminary, and she is completing her master's degree in quantitative modeling this year. Charlene Thrope also trained as a mikveh guide with Immerse NYC, and Charlene Thrope is an active member of the United Jewish Congregation of Hong Kong. Yes, you heard that right. Max and Charlene are in Hong Kong because of Charlene's day job. So in any event, we're really excited to get into this conversation. So Max Buckler, Charlene Thrope, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. Thanks, Dan. Thank you so much for having us. So could we get started by your telling us a little bit of the story of how you became involved with these explorations of the future of circumcision? For us, there was no specific moment or story when it was like, oh, this is something we need to talk about. Uh, this kind of came up just as a broader exploration of all the types of Jewish conversations we'd have like on Alpha West Side of Manhattan about ritual and gender and future of Judaism. Um, I sort of have a little bit more of a skeptical perspective when I'm looking at a few Jewish traditions. And just one way or another, it started coming up at Shabbat dinners. Um, we, we used to live on the Upper West Side, as I mentioned, and then these conversations started coming up about, well, what about Read Me Live? I mean, we were talking about all kind of controversial 
things about Judaism, and it was just so rare to talk about circumcision. And what we found was that most of our friends and most people in our community really hadn't ever discussed it before. And that was sort of the first clue that warranted, okay, this this needs a little bit more exploration. I think a lot of people don't really know how to talk about it because our only frame of reference a lot of times is jokes, right? There are Mm. lots and lots and lots of jokes about circumcision uh, from like just a snip to the baby cried more when their diaper came off, right? And that's our frame of reference. And also for a lot of people we're talking to, it's something that happened to them or that they did to their children. So because of that context, I think there's a little bit of shock. And then I think for me, what first drew me to this topic was the gender lens. I grew up in a community where I identified as a Jewish feminist, and that was a big part of my Jewish upbringing. And so I look at all rituals with that lens. And I think that with Freak Me Law, it's actually one of the only rituals that we haven't totally addressed from a gender lens. So we're either cutting a baby's genitals or not, just based on what the genitals look like. It enforces the gender binary, and it does so in a way that signals that assigned males at birth are more valuable than assigned females at birth. And we've seen Simchat Bot ceremonies or baby naming ceremonies for baby girls. Sometimes they happen on the eighth day, but a lot of times they happen on Shabbat or on a day that's kind of more convenient for friends and family, maybe when the baby is a few weeks old. And so I think that people are trying to say, how do we make a meaningful baby welcoming ceremony for all babies? But Brimi Law still has this higher level of importance and priority. So I want to break the fourth wall of our podcast a little bit. We've tried ever since our inception to go to the conversation topics in Jewish life that are hardest and to take them on through lenses, through perspectives that people haven't necessarily thought about as much. And so, you know, we've talked about intermarriage, we've talked about Israel-Palestine, we've talked about atheism, and we've talked about a lot of things that in different ways push different buttons. We haven't talked about circumcision until last week and this week in in a deep way. I I think it might have come up in little passing conversations. And honestly, I'm not bringing that up to like self-flagellate, but I think it's interesting. It, It wasn't a conscious choice by us, but I think there is a way in which like when we can... We avoid this conversation, right? Like when when there's not some like big reason, which is to say like when you're actually having a child who is assigned male at birth or for some other reason, there's like a, a, there's something facing you that you would want to talk about. Like I think for the most part, people just don't go there because we inhabit a society where talking about genitals, talking about our, our bodies, talking about anything related to that genre is not what we do most of the time. And I'm I'm glad we're now breaking that, but I'm curious if you can talk about, you know, so I'm, I'm interested in the groups of friends that you have that like this came up at Shabbat dinners, but that's not really my question. My question is like, when you have these conversations with people, what comes up? Like, what are people's nervousnesses? What are people's anxieties? What are like the communal taboos? Like, what what are some of the issues that you encounter? And by the way, that can be like your own questions that you've been asking or those that you've encountered when talking with friends? I think for our friends who are rabbis and have officiated at 
a bris, multiple brises, there's kind of this tension of there can't be anything wrong with this thing that I've done, or I can't question this thing that I've done because I've done it. I think that's one piece. Another is, maybe Max should say this more than me, but I think that there is an aspect of if there's anything wrong with Brit Mila, then there's something wrong with my genitals. Lex, you had mentioned that this isn't something that we really talk about until maybe people are about to be parents. And I would argue that even then, it's not really a conversation or discussion. It's just, this is what we do. So there hasn't been this kind of intentional, why do we do this? How do we make an informed decision about this? It's more just, well, we're Jews and this is what we do. And this is what my parents did to me and what I will do to my children. And we've been doing it for generations and generations. And it's in a lot of ways, a non-choice. Shara and I talk a lot about how this is something done on autopilot. So when you get into these conversations, that's sort of the starting point that people are like, well, we're not going to change it. So where's this conversation even going to go? You know, you're, you're sort of a defender by default when you, when you start getting into it. And this is the same way that I was when I first thought about it. It's not like I came out of the womb opposing circumcision. Okay. It wasn't until I was 26 years old that I actually looked and identified that what's on my genitals is a scar. In the Jewish community, there's this very tightly woven patchwork of connection to Rimila, where your best friend just performed it last year and your cousin's doing it next week. And if we're going to say anything critical about it, we're criticizing virtually everyone. We're criticizing our friends and family. And we're kind of saying that there's something wrong with their behaviors, almost everyone. And there's no time when we stop and take a breath. We don't take a breath from this patchwork and say, okay, we need to stop, sit down and assess what we're doing. And I think if you did, that creates a little bit different scenario. But since we just keep going, the train keeps moving, it makes it very difficult to actually step back and assess what's happening. And that's sort of what's at play when you have these conversations. There are some families that don't know what the sex of their baby will be. And so this is literally a decision that they're making right after giving birth or right after having a baby or right after adopting a child, right? Whatever that looks like, but a baby enters your life and very quickly you need to make a decision. So sometimes there's not time to have the conversations. Maybe those should be conversations that happen beforehand, but sometimes they're not. I was thinking about time in another way. Like I just think about my own experience as a parent and it's like, I just never known this was a real topic of of conversation before I had a child. You know, it was like it just didn't come up. Now, I think that might be because times have changed. That was nearly 20 years ago. One thing that occurred to me, it's like when you think about um, and we've had ultra orthodox guests on this show. And one of the conversations is how in the ultra orthodox community, the fact that people get married at a very young age is not really an accident. It's a it's a way of keeping people attached to the community because by the time they find out about various questions that, that there might be about things like, do they believe in God? They're already so kind of wired into the community that, you know, maybe intellectually they don't believe in God anymore, but realistically they're, they're not going to do something different. This is a little different than that, but it's still kind of the same. It's like you're making this decision when you're relatively young. Now people are having kids older, so it's a little less so. But I was, I was in my 30s. I wasn't so young, and it just had never come up. 
it's not even necessarily that you're grappling with this issue and you don't know what to do and it's only eight days and then you got to do something so you do. It's like it, you hadn't even thought of it, I think, in many cases. So the question starts to be for me, like, how do you break into that cycle? You know, how do you get people to to think about even the question when they're young enough that it matters? Uh and and then the other piece is is that that was in my mind as you were talking was like we can and we will talk later about the arguments that it's really a, a bad thing to do but I would even start with the question of like is it a good thing to do like what's good about it right and and maybe we can just have the conversation there first and then we can say well if we end up saying hey we really maybe shouldn't be doing this just because we can't figure out what's good about it we don't even have to go to the place that says how it's so bad. Thinking about good things, I think that there's this really powerful chain of tradition with circumcision. And there are not so many rituals that we can trace back as long as we can trace back circumcision. And it's something that comes up when you read about Abraham circumcising himself and circumcising Isaac, that there's this really it's a body mitzvah, right? And if you think about different commandments, different mitzvot, that some of them, prayer is really more about what you're saying and what you're thinking, but there are some mitzvot that really involve our full bodies. And there aren't so many of them, right? I think that we talk about like dwelling in the sukkah for Sukkot is kind of one of those full body mitzvot or immersing in the mikvah is a a ritual immersion is a full body mitzvah. And I would argue that Brit Milah is a full body mitzvah, but there's a lot that are more just an act that you do rather than kind of a physical thing that you're taking on. So I think that there's a lot, a lot of power in that. I just want to clarify my question, though. I wasn't I wasn't really meaning to ask you to say what was good about it. I was kind of saying like the the question that I have about it before we talk about how it might be such a bad thing to cut, you know, however you want to phrase it is like, I don't know, like people talk about the the breed, the circumcision is like, it's so, so beautiful. And I'm like, I don't know what's so beautiful about it. Like, you know, if we had a practice that was like, you should take every baby's appendix out when they're born, like from a medical perspective, I mean, I know that I'm kind of, you know, probably it's not good to have abdominal surgery and like, it's worse, it's worse. But I mean, like, let's say that you could do the surgery really safely. I don't think that we would say, oh, it's so beautiful to take out somebody's appendix. We would just be like, you know, maybe we shouldn't be messing around with the appendix, not because it's so horrible, but just because it's like, why muck around, you know? And so like, my question is like, before we even get into like major critiques of circumcision, maybe we shouldn't be like, just like, I I feel like there's like part of the cycle that you're talking about is this like storytelling, I don't know, you know, is is this way that we, like you were saying, that we have these kind of um, network of ideas within the Jewish community, like that the circumcision is, beautiful or that like it's a covenant with God, but most of the people saying that don't believe in God. So like, what do they, what do they think they're doing? Like, that's the question. And then I think that a lot of that is just unexamined because like you were saying, like the conversation is never had. I'm really reminded of an earlier conversation we had with, uh, with one of our friends who is a rabbi and they said something that's really guided my exploration on this. And this is dealing with Judaism in progressive areas, Judaism that has a strong connection to traditional values and and Torah study, but that is still interpretive. Um, And that was that a tradition 
could continue till there's a pressing moral reason to change. And I think towards your question, Dan, when it comes to Brit Mila, I can't look at it and say, what reason is there not to change? You know, we're dealing with something that enforces, enforces the gender binary, that infringes on a person's uh, ability to make choices about their body. Um, and that generally doesn't have intentionality, which I, I trace to as a very important Jewish value. I'm kind of looking for saying, like, what the, what's the reason for doing it? Well, it's, it's a continued tradition. And when, when do we ram up against a time when tradition should be challenged? And I think this one, I can't see a reason why it wouldn't at least be challenged. I really, really want to sit with what you're saying, Max, about your conversation with the rabbi. I, I didn't catch the gender of the rabbi. They, they said to you, you know, basically, look, we'll do all the historic, meaningful, traditional stuff unless there's a big reason to discard it. I don't agree with that framework. I think that what, what that is, is saying about how Judaism works is something I actually patently reject. I don't believe in opt-out Judaism. I don't believe what we should be doing is receiving everything that we've received from the Jewish past, all the holidays, all the texts, all the whatever, and keeping everything until we find a reason not to. That's, I find that to be honestly appalling. I think that what that will always lead to is keeping rituals that we don't actually stand behind because we don't have the time to research everything. And so we're just going to keep everything. Whereas if we start from an opt-in framework of, ah, I'm going to do the stuff that I actually think is great. I'm going to co-create with communities the set of things that I think are great. You know, and by the way, I have a long, long list of Jewish holidays and texts and rituals and whatever that I think are great. And those are the ones that I do. I'm curious because, Max, your response was actually still on the terms of that rabbi's assertion, right? It was still, I, I, I'll buy that we need a really good reason to discard something. And here's that good reason. You know, here's why circumcision breaks a, a variety of values that I don't want to break. I would I would pose the question like who out there if they were looking at the at the schema of Jewishness of Judaism would look at this ritual and be like that's awesome. I don't think very many people. And so if it's not doing that, then how can we sort of pose the question differently where we'd say, "Huh, there are covenantal rituals that I think would be really amazing and powerful that we could create." that would actually soar to the skies, to the, to the heavens, whatever you want to think. Let's do those instead. Like, how can we flip that equation a little bit? Well, one thing is that I think that we've seen that with covenantal ceremonies for baby girls, right? People are creating really amazing rituals that involve wrapping the baby in a tallit or washing feet or cutting a pomegranate. These really, it, it, with, with baby girls, we've had the opportunity to yeah. start from scratch and it's looked yeah, really Yeah, And by the cool. way, I'm sorry to interrupt, but the re I think that the reason for that is that we don't have a 2,500 year old ritual for assigned female at birth children that we now have to buck. We have to upend. I think it's actually the result of being able to say, we're going to start our own stuff. 
But we're not doing that with the other half of this equation. Although actually, there, I do think there are some folks doing that, but like many, many fewer. There's a huge frontier for ritual creation for gender inclusive covenantal ceremonies. Um, really, it's all on the table right now. And I, th I think it's very exciting. And uh, I agree. On the point of um, being informed by what that, by what that rabbi said uh, about keeping a tradition till there's a moral reason to change, my Judaism is more in line uh, with, with your version of it, Lex. My, my criticism there is on someone who, if they're, if they're taking that position, uh, tradition keeps unless you have a moral reason to change. I'm saying, what is the moral reason to keep it in this? I'm saying there sh then there should be this should be an official challenge right away. You know, there should be a huge conversation about it right away if that's if that if that's your position. Can we talk about the distinctions? And uh, and I have to you know I don't think I'm really uh, you know in on the terminology, so I'm not sure I'm necessarily phrasing the question exactly right. But I mean, I feel like when we talk about circumcision. Folks that talk about themselves as intactivists will often, I mean, the people that give out literature, you know, in front of the hospital, like it's often very alarmist. I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean they're trying to alarm you. You know, it's like this is this is uh, this is harmful. It takes away uh, sexual feeling. It takes away, uh, you know, other things that can cause problems, you know, and, and all of that is is, you know, I, I think very, very important to, to sort out and think about. And then. But the other piece of it, and this is like what I'm trying to get is, it's like sort of what you were saying, Charlene, earlier. It's like, even if the sexual feeling was the same and, you know, there wasn't, I would still look at this and say, you know, why are we doing like a surgical procedure on an eight-day-old baby? Like, I would just, you know, even if there, there were no sequelae, you know, I, I would sort of say, well... That just doesn't seem like a great idea. And when we think about like, well, we used to give animal sacrifices at the temple. Now, why did we stop doing the animal sacrifices? Not because people were concerned about cruelty to animals, because, you know, the Romans destroyed the temple. We couldn't do that anymore. But but now if you were to ask somebody 2000 years later, hey, you want to start doing animal sacrifices again? They would say absolutely not. Most people would say absolutely not, because that's cruel to animals. Like, I don't like the idea of, of doing that. And partly, it almost feels to me, maybe this goes to the opt-in point, that if something had intervened at some point in the last 2,000 years that made circumcision not possible for a few hundred years, it seems unlikely to me that the Jews would have readopted it. You would have that break in, in the patchwork that would allow people to assess it with, without the bias. I'm interested in, again, maybe going into some of those conversations that you were talking about, you know, that people should be having before they're having kids, for for example, you know, and, and, I, and it would be great to hear both of those kinds of information that we should be considering, you know, the, what I was calling the more kind of intactivist, alarming type of medical information, and also the stuff about just like, well, even if none of that was true, here are some reasons why, you know, maybe this isn't the best thing to keep doing. Think about your body right now and be in touch with it and feel every part of your body and say, is there something here that I would like to remove right now? Maybe there is. And that would be your decision as a, as a person who can think about it and make an informed decision about it. Um, intactivists are coming at it from the point that as this is a healthy body part, the parents do not have the right to move this to make this surgical alteration to their child that's a, that's what's at the core of that argument the reason i don't identify as an intactivist 
isn't because I don't agree with that statement. It's because of the alarmist rhetoric, harmful rhetoric, and often we see some anti-Semitic rhetoric. It's not because I don't agree with the central view, which is that human beings have the right to bodily autonomy. The amazing thing about intactivists is that their point and what they're up in arms about is something everyone, I think, in the Jewish community would be up in arms about if it were any other body part. In the Jewish community, we have sunken this body part so deep that we don't even, we think of it as a module, an, an extra module of the penis. You know, what do we always hear? That it's a tiny piece of skin that, that uh, you know, it, it's just a little sniff. That's, that's the common terminology we hear a lot in the Jewish community. That makes it impossible for us to compare it to any other body part. So we aren't really assessing this from the sense that it's a body part. Um, and then when you think about why someone might be alarmist, if you can say, is this really the only part of the human body that we would take this kind of stance with? You can see why people might be alarmed about it. And uh, unfortunately, once you have something that's so foundational to our culture, it feels like even more alarmist to hear any kind of criticism. And then you have the fact that the intactivist movement does get into quite a bit of harmful rhetoric. I think that one of the interesting things about the medical conversation around circumcision is that I don't think that that's why Jews do it. Right. I think that there's it when people are pressed to say, why do you do it? I think that it's healthier is one of the reasons that they give. But I would argue that that's not why they're doing it. It's just a rationalization. And as you were talking, I was thinking, like, how many Jews, you know, actually know how the circumcision is done? When they've attended them, they don't really, there's not like a camera, thank God, you know, but there's not a camera with a jumbotron. They're, they're, They're not really seeing what's going on. And I think like when people say it's a little piece of skin, like I think that they would be pretty shocked to understand exactly what's going on. I can explain it. And it's true. And I, you know, even just to speak personally, since I've talked to my parents, um, you know, my mother waited in another room when I was uh, circumcised. My father had to look away because at a earlier cousin's bris, he accidentally stood up too close to see the blood and he took two steps out of the kitchen and, and passed out face down on the floor. Quick content warning that we're about to get pretty specific about how the circumcision procedure works. And if you would like to avoid that, fast forward a few minutes. And when you think it's just a little piece of skin, what tool you think is used is probably just a scalpel or just a scissors. The reality is that this procedure requires multiple tools. The first thing you need is a probe because the foreskin in an infant is fused to the gland set. It actually doesn't come down until it start moving and sliding until the child's eight or nine years old. So there's a mucosal membrane inside, a double layer of skin inside the foreskin. And the first thing that the moil has to do is take a metal probe, which is basically a metal stick, and insert that and disrupt that fusion. And this is the moment that, if you were watching the circumcision, that almost every time the child will start to cry out at that moment. Then once that's broken, which is called retraction, the next step is to use a hemostat. In most models, there's a variety of the way they practice it, but you use a hemostat to grab hold of the foreskin and stretch it out so that you can prepare to do the cut. Then you need a clamp, and there are multiple types of clamps people use. Many in the Jewish community use what's called a Mogan clamp, which clamps onto the now loosened skin, protecting the gland set underneath. 
and exposing the foreskin, which is now stretched over. And then a scalpel is used over the top of the clamp to remove what's there and to, and to complete the, the, the circumcision. So this, this is a multi-step process. Um, it's not something that's hanging off. It's, it's, it's invasive. And I, I do think it would make a big difference if people, personally, I think people should witness one before they do it. But that's, that's sort of my perspective. But it's, it's a procedure. Just an interesting thing that I think has happened with COVID is now there's lots of brisses happening on Zoom. And it's very interesting that we've been to a few Zoom brisses and there are times when the camera just turns away and doesn't even show what's happening. And I think that that shows at least some level of discomfort, right? There's some knowledge that maybe we don't want an up close and personal view of our son's penis having surgery on it for all of our friends and family to see, right? There's some level of knowledge that, or maybe just not every, not anybody wants to see that, whatever it is. I want to come back to some of the questions about like why this ritual has this powerful hold. And I like, and I want to not dismiss some of what's happening because I think there are actually some deep things happening. And I would just argue that we could look at them slightly differently. So there is what Charlene, you were saying about how there's this story, Abraham and I, like all the way back in the Torah, we, we can actually say about this ritual, although it's not quite as simple as people think, that there is a huge amount of, you know, generational history behind this. And there's a literal story about it in the Torah. I do think that there are ways in which we use something being historic. Like if something is super fun, I don't hear a lot of people saying the reason why we do Lots of loud noise making and scream and stuff at Purim spiels and like booing Haman or like, I don't hear a lot of people saying we do that because for generations people have done that. I hear people saying like, it's freaking fun. It's fun to be in a big old space and yell and boo Haman. Like, so you don't, I feel like the argument of, ah, we've been doing this for centuries or for millennia. That's the argument we use when we don't have a great argument for like, Ah, lighting Hanukkah candles is beautiful and light and darkness and fun. And I also think it's true that part of why this ritual has so much power is precisely the fact that it doesn't make sense to us, right? Like there's a way in which it being sort of this cultic, this like thing that doesn't feel of our time, it, it, it like that sort of adds a kind of power and we could unpack whether that's good or bad. But like I do think that people actually gravitate towards that. But what I do want to ask is like, there's beautiful, powerful, positive things that I believe should happen to mark a new baby arriving into the world. I think that generally, and I also think that Jewishly, I think there absolutely is, I don't have any problem with like having a beautiful ritual eight days after birth where you enshrine a new human being in Jewish life. Like that's such a cool thing. And so- I think one danger of this conversation when we're sort of criticizing the rituals that have existed is that it sounds like we're just sort of anti-anti, right? Can you give us some more color to just like the, the, the beautiful, meaningful things that one can do for a baby naming? And by the way, it might be drawing from those rituals related to those who are assigned female at birth. But like I, I, from my own perspective, like I'm thankful. I actually have done a few baby namings and that, and I have done a baby naming for a child who is assigned male at birth. 
that child had a hospital circumcision, so I didn't have to do anything with that. And I was exceedingly grateful to not have to think about what I would do with a traditional ceremony. What might we learn from alternative kinds of ceremony? Like, what might we frame as, ah, these are great ways to, to welcome a child of any gender into the world, including those that in the past might have been circumcised? I think it is just this opportunity to start from scratch and say, what are the values that we want to welcome our child into the Jewish community with? You had mentioned kind of welcoming a baby into the world and welcoming a baby into the Jewish world. And I think that in a lot of ways, those are two different things, right? That like doing something on the eighth day or whatever day it is and officially welcoming the baby into the Jewish community and giving them a Hebrew name or bringing them as part of this chain of tradition, I think is a, is a special thing that might even be separate than just welcoming a baby into the world, right? There's something special about welcoming a baby into a Jewish community and that it starts this chain of tradition, right? One of the things that we say at a traditional bris is about kind of, this is the start of the baby's Jewish journey. And I think it's worth noting that there are some people who recognize that a bris is not a positive, beautiful ceremony and instead take the perspective as the baby is suffering and that's part of being in the world. We're introducing them to a life of suffering. And as a parent, I'm using my child to make a sacrifice and to recognize that I don't have full control over my child or whatever it is, but, but basically using the child as a sacrifice. And there are people who own that and say that this is why they do that tradition. I think there's a lot of interesting places we can go there around intergenerational trauma. I think that it kind of functions as a hazing ritual, but I just, I think that it's important to note that, like, if you think about it as there are other Jewish traditions that we do that people don't have to have a beautiful meaning for them, right? And sometimes the meaning for them is suffering, right? I, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about all of that, but I do think that it, I just wanted to say that there are people who think that, who know that a bris is not a positive experience for the baby and they are doing it intentionally because of that reason. One formative story for me was that uh, when we were at an Orthodox bris in Manhattan, one of the Chabad rabbis from my university was there and uh, and after the ceremony, he came up to me and he got, oh, Max, let's let's have a l'chaim. And, and he was talking to me about, you know, traditional. There's a saying that Eliyahu, uh, Hanabi, is always at every bris. And we were talking about that. And then he said, it's amazing that Jews continue to do this sacrifice. And I don't think in progressive spaces, I hear the word sacrifice used quite often when it comes to doing a brit milah. In the progressive world, when we have these conversations, we hear something that's also troubling, which is that, you know, one answer we got from, from a rabbi was that this teaches you that you're not in total control as a parent and that you have to give in to the wider community and that that's a healthy thing. And, and you know, we've heard other answers such as that it does hurt the baby, but being a Jew is, in this world is difficult. So this teaches them that and, and that life is suffering. And, you know, people, the thing is, though, that these are answers that come from people who haven't thought about this very deeply. You have to have empathy when you're having these conversations because people are saying, well, we've done it for 3,000 years. There has to be a good reason. And then you use your brain and you use your mind to come up with these reasons. So I don't think of them as 
harsh or heinous uh, statements. It's really just like an attempt to rationalize. But but I, I also wanted to add, because I was going back to Lex's question, I actually think what we have to recognize is that this ritual is highly effective and is ecstatic. You know, this is similar to fraternity hazing. It creates this kind of cultural cohesion that's very difficult to break. It's just ecstatic in a toxic way. Going back to the ritual conversation, a lot of my Jewish experience and Jewish thoughts about ritual stem from my connection to mikvah. And I think that there are really, really amazing and powerful and cool rituals that have been created for different mikvah immersion ceremonies for any range of life events or spiritual events. And I think that there is a huge opportunity to do something similar with covenantal ceremonies, right? Where we're starting from this place of we don't really love where this came from. We don't love maybe the original intent. We there's some level of discomfort, but we have an opportunity to say something about this is powerful. Something about this is Jewish. Something about this we want to keep, but it's figuring out how do we reimagine that and repackage it and reinterpret it and make it personally meaningful, right? I think that there's a really, really cool opportunity, yes, to, to connect, a, to bring a baby into the beautiful Jewish community, but also for parents to have a really big role in what that looks like and to make it more personal. Right now, the personal aspect of a bris is the parents giving a name. And I think we've seen that even with beautiful speeches that parents give explaining the name of their child. And there's just a lot more opportunities for that around what are rituals that we can do and create? What are things that parents can maybe partner with their rabbi on or and, and really be co-creators in a ritual to welcome their child into the Jewish community in a way that aligns with their values and their Jewish community. Charlene, you mentioned that you had this perspective because of your positive experiences with Mikvah. And I know you're from Boston. I'm wondering if those positive experiences come because of the Maim Chaim Mikvah in Boston. And if so, I'm I'm raising that only because... First of all, they were an early, uh, Lisa Klein, who was the founding director, was an early guest on Judaism Unbound, but but also because that is a very unique place, a very unique mikvah that in a way proves the point that we're talking about here, which is that most people in most cities would not say that about a mikvah because the mikvah there is this old, uh, meaningless, hard to understand, you know, and so it's fascinating to me and it's kind of a example of the kind of Jewish change that we hope to see, the kind of domino effect that somebody who happens to be from Boston and experiences a mikvah this way can now make an analogy to something else. And maybe that's how change happens. My positive mikvah experiences didn't start at Mayim Chaim, but that is where Max and I immersed before our wedding. I actually, my mikvah experience is with Immerse NYC in New York, which came from Mayim Chaim, right? right. And Sarah Luria has been a guest here too, so we'll, we'll take it. <laughs> and what it reflects, by the way, I mean, mikvah is a great example. Mikvah is also a Jewish ritual with a very rich history. Putting on like my nerdy hat, like th- th- there's not evidence for mikvah in the Bible in the same way that there's evidence for circumcision in the Bible. There is absolutely mikvah in like the Talmud. And, and so like we've got, you know, a little less history, but still it's pretty ancient. But what 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 I'm hearing you get at, Dan, 
is that the beautiful thing about mikvah in 2021 is not just, and I apologize that I'm saying the same thing in different ways every day, but I, it's just really important to me. Like, it's not that it's been around a long time. That's not what's magical about it. Like, what's magical about it is that we, like, ah, our ancestors understood something. They understood that, that one could immerse in water. Something powerful experientially happens. And so what Mayim Chaim has done is they've taken the pieces of the traditional ritual, but they've also given people the opportunity to layer on their own meanings and to have people who wouldn't have been going to the mikvah in eras past do so now. I, I went to the to Mayim Chaim mikvah. I don't even remember why. It, was, it wasn't a big life. Like, I just kind of wanted to go. I think it might have been after I, like, moved apartments or so. Like, it was something pretty small. But I went and it was actually very powerful for me. And so what would change? Like what what could happen if we all took to heart the effort that I'm hearing Charlene and, and to some extent Max, both of you talk about, which is like, let's actually ask what's happening here. Like why did we do this ritual? Okay, so there's X, Y, and Z things that we might think are toxic or like permanently toxic. But there's other things you know, the welcoming of a child into the world, the, the giving of a name that will be with them for all of life. Like, there's some things that we actually do want. Do you have sort of future looking thoughts about where this might go if we were to ask bigger questions about what we do with baby rituals? I see there kind of being two possibilities of what this might look like. And obviously there's a lot of other possibilities as well. But one is kind of a, a widely practiced gender inclusive baby welcoming ceremony, right? And I think that we have a lot of great models for what that could look like, just nothing's really stuck yet. And, and we've seen this over time, right? That different rituals might take time to stick more than others. Uh, so I think that that's one possibility of seeing these models we have of wrapping a baby in a talit or washing the baby's feet or just kind of these other rituals that can be gender inclusive and can gain popularity with a lot of Jewish parents. I think that's one option. I think another possibility is that there is not one widely practiced Jewish baby welcoming ceremony and that instead it's really something that the, the parents decide and create. Uh, or it's ritual co-creation with a rabbi or spiritual leader, and that it's a lot more personalized. I just want to say one other thing about mikvah that even connects a little more to circumcision. Another welcoming a child into the Jewish community ceremony that we have is when a baby is converting and they immerse in the mikvah. And I heard, an, an, we talked about some wonderful leaders in the mikvah movement, and I heard a, a leader talk about how for her, it's very important that the baby immersing in the mikvah, that that is not a traumatic experience for the baby. And so she makes a judgment call. If the baby dunks twice and they dunk for a third time, and maybe they didn't get all the way under, but the baby is suffering, that for her, that's enough. And that it's so important that the baby is welcomed into the Jewish community in a positive way. And so I just think that's another interesting example of how we see Breet Me La versus how we see other baby welcoming ceremonies and how, how do we want to bring babies into the Jewish community? Do we want it to be a ritual filled with suffering or do we want it to be a ritual filled with meaning and joy? When I immersed with my time, 
I was a little nervous about it because it was actually my first time immersing. You know, I, I have a different connection of these two issues, which is that not necessarily that our ancestors felt this amazing experience of immersing, but that they cleansed female impure blood, whereas the male blood from the circumcision is salvic. And um, Charlene, with her reclamation of mikvah and that work is part of my inspiration for reclaiming. Um, and at my time, they, they gave me a sheet and the mikvah guide said, here's a sheet of things people have said in the past. This isn't something you need to say right now, but these are options that other people have used. Maybe you're going to come up with your own kind of thing. And then I felt like immediately, like I was connected with the tradition because I had the words of people who came before, but also I wasn't held hostage to only doing things one way. And I ended up using something that was on the sheet, which I wouldn't have used if it was the, if it, if it was just like, here's your sheet, here's what you say, get in there and dump. We talked about intentionality with Brit Mila. I don't think it only has to be one way. I think that it can come from the patchwork. It can come from the Jewish community and, and people can kind of become educated, uh, intentional participants in the tradition rather than just call and response. We've seen some really, really beautiful baby welcoming ceremonies that I think could be a model for what they might look like in the future. And we just went to a Brit bot uh, where there were verses that connected to the baby's name which was really beautiful, right? And that's something that's customizable and unique and special. You know, a lot of times on this show, we think about, look, at the end of the day, and I mean, we're getting towards the end of the episode, you know, at the end of the day, are we talking about something that the, that the major institutions of the Jewish community are really going to get behind? Or are we talking realistically about something that's going to have to come into the conversation from somewhere else? You know, and like, it's not like all the synagogues in America started reinventing mikvah. You know, Maim Chaim came along and as an independent player and said, we've got an idea here, you know, and it, and it's really, you know, and it's taking a long time because really it hasn't spread everywhere yet. You know, it's slow, but, but that's, I think, where the big change will come from. Now, I would love it if the synagogues and rabbis out there would start to say, you know what, circumcision is one way you could go and you could go other ways. Um... I have my doubts. So I like one question is kind of like, how could we imagine getting the conversation? We started this conversation with you talking about you having these conversations with friends, you know, in your apartment. You know, what's the way that people can start to have these kinds of conversations and and at the right time? And by the way, the right time doesn't necessarily mean for prospective parents. Like a lot of our listeners out there probably uh, people who have older kids who are not yet parents. Maybe the people to be having the conversations are just as much the older folks as the younger folks, because a lot of times the younger folks are having circumcisions because they feel some pressure from their parents and their parents may not even care. They may not even have that pressure. It's just that there's some expectation or nobody's really ever thought about it. So I kind of wonder, A, how how we could intervene here and make these conversations happen. But I also just want to raise again this issue, and I appreciate that we went in the direction of the alternative ceremonies, but I do think that there is this issue that as long as people, regular Jews I'm talking about, I'm just talking about rabbis, I'm talking about regular people, you know, oftentimes you talk about a person and they say, oh, I'm, I'm Jewish, sort of, but like I was never bar mitzvahed. In their mind, they think that, 
to be bar mitzvah is how somehow you, it's like a finishing touch on being a Jew. And if you didn't have a bar mitzvah, then you're not exactly Jewish. Now, someone who's in the in the know will say that's not true. You don't need to have a bar mitzvah. You're just as Jewish if you didn't have a bar mitzvah as if you did have a bar mitzvah. And that for sure is the case. I think a lot of people think that way about uh, circumcision. They say if I didn't have a circumcision and you know I have the right equipment that I should have, uh, I I'm not really a Jew. And until that mindset is broken, it feels like there's just going to be too much inertia to say, well, even though there may be this and that issue, we probably should just do it because I don't want the kid to feel like he's not a Jew. And how do we kind of get that changed mindset to make some of these things even on the table for people? I think it's part of a broader conversation about Judaism that we are the living Torah and that this is on the table. If you're starting from a place of this is not on the table because you think that's what makes you Jewish, then we can't address this issue in any kind of meaningful way. So it's it's sort of a combination of factors between people thinking, are you really Jewish if you're not circumcised or if you oppose circumcision? Um, isn't that too far? Is that the actual red line? Is that the actual time when you say, okay, I've gone too far. I'm a different religion, you know, which I don't think is in, in my understanding of tradition, which is we have an interpretive tradition that we are the still living arbiters of this chain. And that mean, that doesn't mean we do everything the same way we did as the last generation. What I would like to see is serious conversation, serious inquest within major movements. Um, I think there's enough justification for a real conversation. What I think is more likely for now is that there'll be sort of a grassroots conversation going on in these rooms, um, in, you know, long walks in the park and Shabbat dinners. But what, if for anyone listening right now, what I what I, what my message is is not to bris or not to bris, but it's definitely that it's on the table and we should be talking about it in Jewish context. As a closing question, I'm just curious what do you, what would you encourage our listeners out there to do with the two episodes they listened to? I mean, by the way, if you haven't listened to last week's, folks, definitely listen. But if folks were, were thinking like, okay, so I just heard two episodes where we talked about covenantal rituals, about this question of whether circumcision is ethical or moral or what we want. What should folks do with this? What would be some action items, some steps for people to take? I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I think a huge action item is having conversations. And it's very important to recognize that the conversations that Max and I have about circumcision are coming from a place of we are two people who were born Jews to two Jewish parents, and we don't know what our path to parenthood will look like. But if I give birth to a child, then nobody will question their Jewish identity. Nobody has ever questioned our Jewish identity. So I, I do think that that's important that Britney Law intersects with Jewish identity and who is a Jew. And so that's an aspect of a conversation that will look different for different families. That aside, knowing that this is something that we should be talking about, whether it's from a lens of wanting to talk about Jewish parenting or talking through a gender lens or from creating new rituals, whatever that looks like to you, whatever is important to your values, bringing a conversation and intentionality 
maybe talking to your parents about it, right? We talked about the generational differences and maybe talking to your parents about it. Maybe it's something that they did, but don't have strong feelings about. But just being able to have those conversations so that you can make a dis- an active decision. I want to read something. And this traces a little bit back to what Dan said about certain people using uh, different types of rhetoric and talking about something alarming. Um, This is a letter uh, written by Rabbi Abraham Geiger, founder of Reform (laughs) Judaism, founder of what we would think of as progressive Judaism. Um, He wrote this letter to Leopold Zunz, another uh, member of that cadre. And I'm going to read it. I am unable to support circumcision with any conviction just because it has always been so highly regarded. It remains a barbaric, bloody act which fills the father with anxiety and subjects the mother to morbid stress. The idea of sacrifice, which once consecrated the procedure, has certainly vanished among us as it should. It is a brutal practice that should not continue, no matter how much religious sentiment may have clung to it in the past. Today, it is perpetuated by only custom and fear, to which we surely do not want to erect temples. So that was in the 1840s. And keeping in mind, that's not an intactivist on Reddit. That's Rabbi Abraham Geiger. Thank you both so much for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for having it. Thank you. And thanks so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. We want to close out this conversation by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. But first, Bruchim.online. That's where you find out more about Bruchim, the organization that is the engine behind the last two weeks conversations related to the issue of circumcision and also other forms of new Jewish covenantal rituals. So check them out. Bruchim.online. And the ways that you can be in touch with us are all as follows. First, you can head to our Twitter or Facebook or Instagram handles. All of those are at Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can hit us up via email at dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. We also, of course, appreciate if you're able to support us financially, especially as this secular year comes to a close, and you can do that via judaismunbound.com slash donate. The very last note I will make is that support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.